We're embarking on a new series and it's going to be based in, certainly to begin with, the early chapters of the Gospel according to Luke. We'll say more about who Luke is and his purpose for writing and see something from our reading together as we get into it. But the first thing we should do is uh, read chapter 1. Quite an extensive reading today but we'll take it all in one uh, section because it deals with uh, Luke's purpose for writing but also then... Uh, the word that comes from God by the angel to Zechariah and then to Elizabeth through Zechariah about John the Baptist, the son that they were going to be given. So turn with me please to Luke chapter 1 and we'll start from verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, and that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people. Go down to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, 
And they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbours. And all these things were talked about through the, all the hill country of Judea. And all, all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Some really long sentences in those with punctuation, but there's something about long sentences uh, when you're reading in the New Testament, it's as if people get caught up in something and they just keep going and going and going because there's so much that has to be said. There's so much in what we've read and we're just going to be scratching the surface on this. But this is an introduction uh, to the gospel according to Luke. And as a little title I would put over it, this is good news. It's good news because a new and a better world is coming. Because God is coming. Humanity longs for a better world because we all know this world is not as good as it could be or should be we all hope for better for sustainable peace for increasing prosperity for a long and pain-free life and for the satisfaction that comes with living a fulfilled life now for some of us that might be something that just is in the smallness of our own little sphere of experience experience but for others this world, they seem to have this vision or understanding that they have a calling to be able to better the whole of humanity. And some people will come and rise up in our society as being those who will be pushing for this new and better world. Why is there this insatiable desire within us as individuals in our smallness and in society and the world in general in its bigness? Why is there this desire for improving this world it's because the world system is broken and we're part of it actually responsible for the brokenness that is there but there is this optimism it would seem that is in most that it's going to get better and in our western culture we would often look to those who do push the boundaries in scientific and medical uh, advances looking for political and financial stability because the two seem to go together for increasing tolerance and inclusion. 
Those are buzzwords in society these days. And for justice and equality. And it's all that this world might be better. And it's us as humanity saying, we're going to make this happen. But the history of humanity shows that left to ourselves, we make an absolute hash of it. History shows us that despite this insatiable desire for better, for the world in its entirety and in general, we're not getting there. And there's a history of pain and suffering, of marginalisation, of inequality, of suffering. The whole system is just broken. And we're notoriously bad in our attempts to fix it, despite our best efforts and intentions. But Luke begins this account, which we'll say something more of in a moment, with a new world vision that really is there throughout the whole of his gospel. And it's for us to enjoy and delight in. It involves us as humanity, but it's not achieved by us. We're brought in by God to the fulfilling and the delighting in this new world order that is coming. But we're not the ones who solve all of the problems of the brokenness that exist. It isn't achieved by us. So Luke raises our vision and in raising our vision above ourselves raises our hopes uh, to show that there is a God who exists and is actively in control of our present world system in order to bring about a new world order according to his timing and purpose. That's Luke's one of Luke's purposes in writing. You can see it throughout his gospel. And you know, the world that is coming, inevitably, for those who will trust God for fixing the problem that is in society, that begins with fixing the problem in us as sinners, that world that we will be part of is better than anything we can hope for right now. And the Bible brings us face to face with that world that is coming and the hope that it brings. It's often said that what we hope for shapes how we live today. I'm hoping that just this little look at Luke chapter 1 will lift our vision again as Luke intends it to for us to see that God is in control, that he is working out a purpose according to his timing and plan with all of the difficulties that we have in this life experience There is something that is beyond imagining that is coming. And with that hope in view, then it will change how we live here and now. The first four verses that we read, which is one big long sentence, uh, Luke lays out for us the purpose for his writing. And his writing is part of uh, the Bible. So we believe it was uh, a work that was inspired by God. So he was caused to go about, the perp- go about the process of writing and he was helped by God in pulling it together. He writes to the most excellent Theophilus. So uh, Luke seems to have some uh, well-to-do uh, friends. And what is it that he wants Theophilus to know? 
he wants him to know for certain. The word certainty is there in verse 4. He wants him to know for certain the things that have been accomplished. So things that have been completed. Now if you accomplish something, it usually speaks of there having been a plan to do something. And then you achieve it. So Luke sees that there's a plan and it's being achieved. And he wants Theophilus and others who would be reading this ourselves. To have certainty about those things that he has been told about. Luke hasn't met the Lord Jesus Christ who is obviously the the key figure in his writing. We're going to get to him in subsequent weeks of course. But here he's referring to what he has seen and heard himself as he has been part of a group of believers in the first century in Jesus Christ. And he has seen things that have been accomplished that are just amazing. And he wants Theophilus to know these things and also to see that having researched it all, it all stacks up what these early preachers of Christianity have been saying. Because up to this point it was all about preaching. They would have used the Old Testament to say that the one that's promised in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament. But here was Luke coming into God's purpose that it might be written down so it might be passed on to people so that we would have certainty. Theophilus would have certainty and we would have certainty about the things that were taught by the apostles and we continue to teach today. Luke was a companion of Paul. Uh, He also penned the Acts of the Apostles. He's a medical doctor. Uh, Paul refers to him in Colossians 4 verse 14 as the beloved physician. So he was a medical doctor. Probably a Gentile. But he had a very good knowledge of Jewish practice. It's an excellent historical work. And it's compelling reading. Because of its reliability. Sir William Ramsey, who lived in the late 19th and early 20th century, at the time when he was around, he was the leading, the foremost authority in the history of of Asia Minor and a New Testament scholar. He said this, Luke is an historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, and he goes on into a whole pile of language, but he says he should be placed among the very greatest historians. This is who we're reading. Ian Blakelock, who died in the 1980s, uh, said, for accuracy of detail and for the evocation of atmosphere, good word, Luke stands, in fact, with Thucydides. You heard of him? Yeah? Thucydides was uh, a 5th century BC Athenian historian. He's famous. His his works are known because he recorded the, uh, what was it called? The history of the Peloponnesian War. Yeah? You got him? No? That was the battle between Sparta and Athens? No. You need to go back to school, you lot. Now, he's regarded as the father of (coughs) scientific history. And that's because of his strict standards of trying to be impartial as he was doing his evidence gathering and the analysis of cause and effect. And this is important. Thucydides was regarded as doing that without reference to the intervention by deities. So here's a man that's come out of the Greek system of the pantheon of gods and he's recording history that's regarded as scientific in the modern sense and because he leaves out any intervention by deities. Now, 
Luke is regarded in the same vein as Thucydides, scientific in his approach. But what is distinctive is that Luke, when he's carefully compiling his account and doing his research, he can't ignore the intervention of the deity. That's important because he recounts extraordinary supernatural events that fit perfectly within a coherent narrative that is entirely plausible and convincing. So that's what we're dealing with, with Luke. We value certainty, don't we? We want something that is trustworthy in this life. Luke is saying at the very beginning, what I'm giving you is carefully researched. I've spent a lot of time on this, and it's so that you might have certainty. So let's come at this on the basis that Luke is reliable, but also on the basis that it's in God's word, that it's reliable and trustworthy. So that we will have the certainty about the existence of God and his indirect involvement in our world, here and now and into the future. So this good news then, that a new and better world is, is coming. It arrives when God shows up. God is always involved. But he is working towards a new and a better world. Look at the next little section, which is verses 5 through to 7. If you've still got your Bibles <coughs> open there before you. We're introduced by Luke. He goes back to this point of telling us about Zechariah and Elizabeth, an elderly couple who were of the priestly lines in, in Israel. And they were devout. It's... Uh, says that they were righteous and walking blamelessly <laughs> and they're people who are longing for God's promised new world the priests in particular in Israel were longing for that because they didn't have the same inheritance as other people in Israel had they had been promised that God would be their inheritance not just in this life but in a future day you know when the I might just say this now. When the young man comes up to the Lord Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wasn't talking about what sometimes we think eternal life is, that is being saved and having a place with God in heaven. When he's talking about inheriting eternal life, he, he had in mind, as the Jews did, a whole new world order where God would be among his people. And everything would be wonderful. Go back to Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah chapter 65. And just look at what the Jews were looking forward to. That was eternal life. God being with them in an idyllic world where there was no pain and suffering. And there was prosperity. And there was joy. And there was happiness. And these two of the priestly line were looking forward to that. But there was a problem. Their hopes of the new world are a little bit strained because, as Luke tells us, verse 7, but they had no child. Now, it's a big thing in Bible times to not have a child because children were, as the psalm says, a heritage from the Lord, a sign interpreted as a sign of blessing from God. People will help to fulfill what God had said to Jacob in Genesis 30. Uh, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. That's, that's an echo of what God said at the very beginning to Adam and Eve. He wanted people to produce offspring 
so that they would enjoy this promised inheritance. And for a faithful couple who were looking forward to this, walking righteously and blamelessly, others could have been looking on and saying, they've no child, there's something not quite right with them. But Luke tells us otherwise. They were righteous and blameless. But there was something within them. There was a longing that they would have a child. Someone who would be part of this new world inheritance. That was what Zachariah was longing for and what he prayed for. That's what we have here. Just as a little lesson. Even the most devout, privately devout, or publicly devout and religious people, suffer the brokenness of this world system. Here were people you would have expected would have had children. But there was none. And they'd reached that age where it was humanly impossible for there to be children. Now praise God for their faithfulness because at this time, through an interpretation of the law, there was a provision where a man could divorce his wife after 10 years of marriage if she had not produced for him offspring. But here we have the sense of a of a faithful, devout couple who will not do that because they realise that marriage is so precious to God. But there's this longing within the pair of them for offspring that would mean there would be this fuller enjoyment in the new world that is coming. We then move into verses 8 onwards and you have this marvellous experience that Zachariah has when he goes into the temple. And it's the news that God is coming And thankfully his grace precedes him. Because it's a fearful thing to consider that God is coming. If as sinners who are broken and rebels against the authority that God is in all of the universe. He will come, it tells us repeatedly in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He will deal with his enemies. With the severest of judgment because he's entitled to do that. Because we as sinners have turned away from him. Here we have the message that God is coming. The new world order is coming. And those who trust him will enjoy that. He needs to send his grace in a special way. Because if he just turns up, then it's not going to be good. This was a once in a lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. There were so many priests and they were divided up into 24 divisions. Go back to 1 Chronicles uh, 24 and read about it there. And they were to uh, be involved in temple service at certain points during the year. And at this point it tells us that he was chosen by lot. So there's so many priests. That, well, Whose turn from the, this group from Abijah is it to go into the holy place in the temple. And to burn incense before the most holy place. The place where God dwells. Whose privilege is that today? And Zacharias, uh, the one that's chosen. You can imagine one, the sense of... Um, privilege tinged with a sense of fear maybe going in all these people it says there was a multitude outside at the time of incense and there's this responsibility on his shoulders to go in and to burn incense in the presence of God or before the presence of God and he's there going about it and the next thing on the right side of the, the altar of incense an angel appears it says he was troubled a bit of an understatement Luke would, would you not just lose all control if an angel just showed up and says that fear came over him? Of course it would do. We don't know what an angel looks like, but here was an angel that turns up in this moment 
the highest point of Zachariah's service life. And God interrupts it by sending a messenger. Hebrews 1 verse 14 says that angels are ministers sent by God uh, on behalf of those who will inherit eternal life. Here was Gabriel sent to intervene. And it was in the midst of religious ritual that was appropriate and according to God's command. You know, sometimes God can show up unexpectedly whenever we're just going about the daily things of honouring the word of God and doing that which God calls us to as his people to be engaged in service and so on. God can sometimes show up in a way that changes everything. What does Gabriel tells him he's Gabriel later he says what what does Gabriel say to him your prayer has been heard the singular you Zechariah God has heard your prayer and your longing for a child and I've come to tell you that your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son precision this is Luke but it's precision from God first you're going to bear a son you're going to call his name John God is gracious or God is full of grace so before God shows up God is full of grace. And he sends a man whose name is God is full of grace. And it's John. What is grace? Grace is uh, the acceptance of and the goodness towards those who cannot or do not deserve such gain. It's God's attitude towards, of kindness towards someone wishing to prosper them. The New World Order is all about prosperity. Being highly favoured um, highlights God's decision to bless someone and bring about positive things for them. It's undeserved blessing and favour. It's what grace is. And the angel Gabriel says, not only will they have joy in that they receive what they've prayed for, even into old age when it's humanly impossible. We were thinking of that in the remembrance this morning, that God can do something when we think it's humanly impossible. God can intervene. But others will have joy because of him too but just look at what the Lord says of John because this sits in contrast to what we'll look at next week which is the declaration that comes through Gabriel to Mary about the description of Jesus they're similar but very different he will be great before the Lord he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God he will go before him who's the him the Lord their God in the power of Elijah To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What's the reference to Elijah got to do with? You go back a number of pages in your Bible to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, the last verses that are there. It speaks of this prophecy that God says, I'm going to send one, I'm going to send Elijah. And he's going to turn the hearts of the people to God. And he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. What? That's... What Gabriel picks up on here when he's talking to Zechariah picks up that prophecy which had been given 400 years before and there'd been silence for 400 years, almost half a, half a millennium. Long time of silence from God. And now Gabriel comes and he comes with a message and he says, You remember what God said back then? It's happening and it's going to be through your son. Imagine being told that. God is gracious. You'll call him that. And God is gracious because he's fulfilling what he said he would do. Did you notice though that as 
Gabriel uses it. He says, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. You know, in the brokenness of our world, when we have this broken relationship with God because of our sin, it affects everything else. Relationships where there should be love, where there should be affection, where there should be respect, it's not there. Sin just ruins everything, and it's no wonder the world is the mess it is. So he's going to come, and as people turn towards God, it's the thought of repentance. It's seeing that they've turned away from God, and they're now going to be turned towards God. In that process, then, relationships are then transformed as well, because people who come into a relationship with God are forever changed. And that touches the relationships they have with everybody else because they're not the same people they once were. That's here. We all need that. That God in his kindness will come and lead us to repentance and grant that to us. To make us to see that we're the problem. That God is just in all of his dealings and righteous. That our sin keeps us from him. But in his grace he is coming. And he's ushering in a new world order. He wants us to enjoy that with him. But we need to turn to him. If we are. You move on then to the next little section. 18 through 23. Um, Zachariah is like. How is this going to happen? Because we're past the age of childbearing. It's a fair enough question Zachariah. Gabriel. I don't think he gets angry, but he's fairly straight. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to tell you what? This good news. This is good news. This is good news before any mention of Jesus Christ. You know, God's good news is all about God saying he will do something and then fulfilling it. Look at it there. It's in your text, verse 19. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. What is the good news? That God is going to do something to honour the promises he'd made at least 400 years before. And it's going to happen through the son that your wife is going to bear to you. That is good news. And he is going to go and he's going to be used by God to turn people towards him and prepare the way and prepare people ready for the coming of God. What a privilege to come to faithful Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse 20 says that, um, he says, you're going to be unable to speak until these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Here's Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, who knows that when God says something, he does it according to his timing. And he says, look, this is going to happen, Zechariah. You haven't believed it. For that, you're going to be silenced. And maybe there's the hint that he was deaf as well, because when John was born, it says they made signs to him. Did you notice that one? And then they asked for a tablet. That's the old-fashioned type. And he wrote on it. Um, it's, It's a wonderful privilege, but there's this lack of faith that renders him silent for nine months as a consequence. You move on then from verse 24 and into 25. You see a little bit of maybe a lack of faith as well with Elizabeth. Shortly afterwards they they conceive or the child is given that is promised. And what does Elizabeth do? She keeps quiet about it. Keeps it hidden for five months. The fearful early stages of pregnancy. She keeps it hidden. A little bit of a lack of faith there too. But amazed 
that this is even happening. That tempered with verse 25, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. She knew what it was to have the stigma of barrenness. And she was being very careful that she would not present herself as with child if there was the possibility that she would lose it because of her age. But then comes the great business of the birth over to verse 57. Looks as though they they live in a little uh, hill dwelling, maybe a little village, city. Uh, They wouldn't have been big in those days in the region of Judea. And you've, uh, you've got the people coming and rejoicing because the son is born. And say to Elizabeth, what are you going to call him then? We should call him Zachariah after your very devout and uh, honourable father, shouldn't we? No, he's called John. What? You don't have any, anybody in your family called John. And that's when Zachariah is consulted. Oh, what are you going to try and say about this Zachariah? He says, his name is John. Definitive. And then his mouth is opened. He has seen the fulfilment of God's purpose in that time. His mouth is opened and what does it say he does? He blesses God. And that's what we read in the prophecy song that is from verse 68 onwards. But did you notice that the people ask right questions? They're filled with fear because they've seen something supernatural happen that is just unexplainable really. And then they see a man who couldn't speak and possibly couldn't hear suddenly healed. And this child is called John. They ask the question in verse 66, what then will this child be? There's something very special that's happening here. What's this child going to be? Now, we're going to race through Zechariah's prophecy because it tells us that God is coming and it shows us that Zechariah trusted that and it shaped his whole life for however many years he had left. I was wondering about this, if they're old, when did they die? And what was John the Baptist's upbringing like? I don't know. He, he could have been orphaned young, but that's, that's a whole bit of speculation. But God is coming. And he's made a promise that he's going to fulfill. And Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit here, launches into this long sentence song prophecy that looks back but also looks forward. He looks back and says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That's not with the birth of John. This is going back to when Moses led the people out of Egypt. He established them in the land of promise, essentially. It's it's going back and seeing that God had worked to bring his people to a place where they could serve him. Exalting the dynasty of King David, so that they might have victory over the enemies of the people. And that they would be able to serve God without fear. That's that first half of that psalm. As Zechariah looks back and see that God had promised something and God fulfilled it. And it was glorious. And you know there's the two verses that sit in the, as the hinge point of the song are 72 and 73. Which mention that God remembered his holy covenant and the oath that he swore to Abraham. It goes even further back to Abraham. Where God made a promise and confirmed it with an oath. And said I'm going to do this for your descendants. And in your descendants, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Now, if you're a bit of a nerd, uh, like I am, that's the middle of it. And you work your way out from that. And you'll see repeated words that appear almost mirrored. So you stick a mirror, 72, 73, and you'll see words like, 
Let me get them for you. Salvation, peace, forgiveness, light, redemption, mercy and service. They all appear mirrored. Because we go on from 74 and Zechariah has looked back at what God has already achieved and he's looking forward to what God has promised he has yet to achieve. Which is that they might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. How's that going to come about? Does that mean they're going to continue to offer sacrifices in this new world order for eternity? No. The Jews knew that there was going to be an end to that system. And they were looking for one who would bring about an end to it. And that person is Jesus. For God's people to be ready and fit for this new world order that's coming, they would need to know the mercy of God, the salvation of God, and the forgiveness of sins. And this is the dawning of the new world era. The sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now some would say that's, that's speaking of the Lord Jesus and his birth and his coming into this world. I would be persuaded in the context of what we're looking at. Zechariah looking back at what God has accomplished. He's now looking forward into the future day of what God has promised he would accomplish. And he's looking for the dawning of a new day. And yes, Christ will be central to that because Christ brings it about for his people. But I think it's speaking of the sunrise of a day that will never end. When there will be no need for sun or moon. And because God is on the throne and Christ is there with him. John's responsibility then was to awaken people to the reality that God was going to bring that about. And the people who would enjoy it would be those who would turn towards him. Who would see that God was a God who is gracious, who is coming with salvation and forgiveness of sins. And he would ultimately point him out one day and say, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're racing ahead of ourselves. But do you see, here's this faithful couple with a vision of the future. And with all the disappointment, God comes in. And does something wonderful for them. And it's not just for their joy. But it's for the joy of the world. What about us? God is coming. He has said he's coming. The new world is coming. God is gracious. Thank God for that. God in the person of Jesus Christ has come. We'll get to that. But he didn't come in judgment. He said himself, I haven't come to judge the world. I've come to be merciful. Bring grace. Jesus has said that there's a new world order that is coming and he's going to gather all those that are his that we might enjoy that with him forever. With that in view, we can look back and see what God has achieved before and thank him for it and praise him for it. But we can look forward as well, as Zachariah and Elizabeth did, and in our songs and in our praise and in our worship, we can look forward to that and see that whatever it is we're going through now, whatever it is we put our hopes in that always let us down, there is something that will never let us down. And that is the goodness and the grace of our God in Christ Jesus, our Saviour. Turn to God. Trust him. Believe his promises in Jesus Christ. And live in the prospect of the new world that's coming. Let's pray.